0: There is this energy from the customers that it's impossible to kind of see it in data. And sometimes actually data can mislead you away from that energy.
1: Happy Thursday morning, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. I uh, got my day counter here. DCBK is in 28 days. If you've been around the pod for a while, you know what that's all about. Hundreds of listeners of this show will be joining us in Thailand. I was reviewing a lot of the content that's going to be going on at DCBK Workshops and speakers and people sharing their stories and stuff. And my favorite part of the event is seeing people who set a goal for themselves. They get the goal because they see An outcome out there in the universe, whether it's on this pod or an event or something like it where they're saying, hey, I want that kind of outcome for myself. They set a course. They're not exactly sure how to get there or if they can do it even. And they start to contribute. They start to just kind of bounce around. Serendipity start to fold out. Stories start to insights happen, breakthroughs, all this kind of stuff. And it's just magical to see people arriving or change course That's my favorite part of these events. That's why I'm still excited to go even 10 years into this. Can't wait to jump on that plane and see so many of you in person in short order. In other news, Ian and I met with another business coach. We are taking this business coaching thing super seriously. We may even reveal who that was in next week's episode, but importantly, some of the lessons that we learned and themes that we're thinking through. Today's episode, speaking of business coaching, has inspired legit breakthroughs in my thinking about business. Somebody I've been following for a very long time. Super excited to be able to bring him on the show for you guys here today. His name is Brian Balfour. He is a founder and CEO of Reforge, which is a company that helps people with really good jobs at tech companies essentially upskill. That's my understanding of what Reforge does. They did $33 million in subscription revenue last year with over 20,000 members to get a load of what is that worth? That's an incredible, incredible outcome. Formerly, he was the VP of growth at HubSpot, where he learned a lot of the lessons he'll share with us today. And he's also started multiple successful companies. More importantly, Brian is the prototypical example of a practicing preacher. You know, a lot of founders are really good at execution, a lot of founders are really good at talking about it. Brian is like a 10 out of 10 in both categories. And that's why I think he's. He's so unique. He can both do something that's incredible, incredible outcomes, but he's also able to articulate the principles involved in that growth and that success in a way that's accessible to the rest of us. It's incredibly unique. You'll hear it today. We have a wide-ranging conversation, including why the zero-to-one phase is almost always the founder's job and it's very difficult to delegate or outsource. He talks about what product-market fit feels like and why a lot of your team around you won't feel it. An interesting concept, and part of the reason I reached out to him. We talk about business's durability and what it's tied or not tied to. How much of it is the founder's talent? How much of it is the dynamics of the marketplace? And how much of it is to do with something Brian will introduce as then, quote, natural limits, a concept that's actually had a big impact on me and created some breakthroughs and we will share with in future episodes of this podcast. We'll round out the conversation with the discussion about how data can mislead you. Yes, that's right. How data science people can mislead you in your company.
0: I'm Brian Balfour. I'm founder and CEO of Reforge, and uh, we help builders build even more through these uh, really awesome professional ed courses and other products.
1: Does this doing shows like this? Does that have any business value for you, or are you just doing it as a favor?
0: Mostly favor. Got it. All right. <laughs> it's interesting. Like. We could probably get in a whole conversation about podcasts and the value to a business and all that kind of stuff.
1: There is a bread trail of you doing episodes around the internet. And I'm curious, does it drive any value for you whatsoever? Or do you just you know do it for fun?
0: Mostly fun and like conversations with friends or friends of friends. And I think that I always see more direct business value when I write something but when i when I think about podcasts, I think it's just the medium, right? If you think about where most people are listening and engaging in that content, they're in their car, they're on their walk, they're, they're doing stuff they're exercising, right? And so that that leap from that content, that engagement to the business just ends up being a much uh like bigger gap. And so even something like gaining a follower or a new email uh, subscriber or something like that. That still ends up being a big gap. So maybe somebody will recognize my name more if I do that. But I think like there's just so much content out there now. There's just so much podcasts. It's like you you move on from one podcast to the next podcast. And that's funny because I literally just launched a podcast 48 hours ago. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's like, why the why the why? F are you do that? Yeah. Why would you do that? I'm finding that it's a much easier way for me to generate new thoughts and new ideas that can then be turned into content uh, that does drive more direct business value. So it's almost just kind of like moving up the funnel of the creation process. And so both a friend and a colleague of mine, Fareed Masaba, we started a podcast called Unsolicited Feedback. And the whole concept is, is not to do another interview podcast because there's just a lot of great ones out there already. Instead, what we do is we invite in a friend, a guest, typically another product or growth leader. And then we choose a couple recent product or feature launches from the last few weeks. And then we analyze it and riff on and debate it like we would at, you know if we were just having dinner with a bunch of other product leaders. And what I found cuz that's where I get a lot of my ideas and a lot of thoughts is just like going out to dinner with these folks and riffing on these things. And as and then so it kind of turned into this idea of like, well, how do I do more of that without ending up coming home at night, even missing my bedtime and being wrecked, you know, the next morning. <laughs> And, and so we were just like, all right, well, like, let's start this as a podcast and see what happens. And so I don't know. We're 48 hours into it. So we'll see what happens. Is it part of it because you're finding
1: it harder to write as your responsibility? I'm assuming your responsibilities as Reforge are growing. I mean, as the company grows.
0: It is. Yeah. Yeah. But here's the dynamic that I can't I haven't like quite figured out, which is people follow people. They don't follow companies anymore. And if you were to rewind like eight years ago, 10 years ago, you know, when I was working with HubSpot and they the playbook for a lot of companies and still is today is the one that HubSpot pioneered, which is to create a company blog and a ton of content and yeah. lead capture and like do all those things. It just flat out doesn't work. Did you like anymore. this article? Sign up for a PDF yeah, guide? Totally, totally. It does not work unless you are HubSpot which already has the machine and the domain authority, just like all that kind of stuff. They still get a lot of gain out of it. But if you are a new or mid-stage company, it just flat out doesn't work. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But I think one of the reasons is that as consumers or prosumers or as like potential customers of products, is that people just got fatigued of like the garbage content that a bunch of SaaS companies were Putting out there, right? Like most of the things you click on in Google these days feel like consuming empty calories. Like it, yeah. it just, it sucks. Uh, and as a result, I think the ability to, for a company to gain a following and build influence is just way harder and way less effective. And what you've seen people start to do, of course, with like the whole creator trend and all that kind of stuff, is people follow people. People, listen to this podcast probably because of you, right? And the questions you ask and the personality and like, like all, all of those types of things, they just don't really follow companies anymore. And so the question is, I think for a lot of new companies, in, especially that are starting out is, how do I like gain this distribution? What is the rewrite of this playbook? And you see this also people get way more play on social channels than they do, than companies do. Take the same exact piece of content, same exact number of followers, put it on a company page versus a person's page, and the person's post will probably get 10 to 20x like more distribution than the company post. Same thing with an email. Send it from a company email versus a mm. personal email. Way more effective, uh, all those things. And so... I don't think this is new. I think this has been happening for years. But I don't... I haven't seen a new company pioneer whatever this new playbook is and standardize this new playbook like HubSpot did to inbound marketing. Like I, That still feels like an opportunity out there. Interesting. It kind of
1: presses the question, like, why do we ever listen to companies in the first place? Was that a fever... Like a kind of an <laughs> early social media <laughs> fever dream?
0: <laughs> no, I think... So I think even like pre this phase, right, like that the story that HubSpot would always tell, right, is the playbook previously was that companies would just like shout in your face with ads and other kind of outbound techniques. And the whole playbook for HubSpot was like, stop doing that and be helpful, like write really helpful stuff. And when they started that, the bar was pretty low on what helpful meant, right? Um, Yeah. And there was like another, a number of other factors that that made it all work. But, you know, everything saturates over time, everything fatigues over time. And now the bar to be helpful is just way higher, just just way, way higher, number one. And number two is that I think the dynamics of distribution have fundamentally changed kind of what I was referring to earlier, which is just like, you look at email, you look at all these social channels, you look at all this type of stuff. And, you know, their algos basically totally reward individuals they do not reward companies and the reason is is because they know if they companies can get it organic they won't pay for it through advertising right like that's the you know like like do you you think that's the reason or that's just who survived at the end
1: because it's interesting you've pointed to these dynamics many times in the past and for many years now that like so many of the people that listen to our pod were here because of number one through five rankings like that's why we're able to exist as founders I think we sense what you're kind of pointing to, which is that ground feels shaky and everybody's looking more towards these like more community or PLG kind of like strategies for the next thing they do. But I I feel like we lack confidence. And I think what's fascinating about what you're saying is like, hey, there's a dynamic here. You can trust in this. Like this does seem to be like a very real shift.
0: The reason I think it's like a real shift now is that you basically cannot cover it up with more venture capital.
1: You got my attention on that. What do you mean by
0: that? So obviously macro conditions have shifted over the past 18 months to two years, right? And there's like been a push to be a lot more efficient as a business, like get, get your unit economics in order, all that kind of stuff. Much harder to raise money. And so I think in the previous environment, it was like spend money, drive the year over year growth percentages and it's pretty easy to get more money and kind of keep that whole flywheel going. Um that's no longer true. And as a result, I think companies, especially new companies, are forced to grow in not play that game in slightly different ways. The economics are changing and I think I think this whole like people follow people over companies trend has finally flipped to a point that the unit economics are just so bad. You just can't get them to work on running the try, the company blog, like that type of playbook, that it's going to force people to try newer things. And I've already seen this, like people have been experimenting it, with it and all that kind of stuff, but they they just haven't, I haven't seen anybody once again, like harness it in a playbook type way. I think like most of the community-led stuff is bullshit, but... Can you gesture
1: towards like, We've got the HubSpot model. What would it kind of yeah. look like? Would it would it look like operators partnering with established influencers and kind of building a bond that way and just putting our back end onto these distribution channels like TikTok and YouTube and stuff like that?
0: Look, if I knew I uh <laughs> I would be running the playbook, maybe one way to think about this, right, is that It was a a decently common playbook, like in the early HubSpot days, was that you would use a few influencers to basically jumpstart the company's distribution, so that you know creating new content had immediate ROI. And so we, at the beginning of HubSpot before my time there, is like there was a couple big like marketer consultants essentially that they signed on. Oh, like Seth Godin and a couple of Neil Patel kind of. Yeah. Yeah. And. And they basically brought them on as quote-unquote advisors, gave them equity, and the exchange was to collaborate on something like X number of times of years to push to their distribution. And what that did is that jump-started HubSpot's distribution and authority, right? So that the content that HubSpot created, they would then have people you know, to send it to who would then amplify it and the whole, the whole machine would go. So in that world, it was like a jump-start strategy. And I think in this world, it's a, you got to flip it where it's like no longer the spark. It's like the core of the engine. And that ends up, it completely changes things. And so, like, I don't actually know exactly what that looks like in the end. And, and to be fair, like, if anybody's well positioned to do this, it should be Reforged because, like, we've got, 300 VPC level operators on the cap table. We've got a massive network of these folks and and stuff like that. And maybe we'll figure it out, but it's um there's a lot of challenges in the process because you got to remember a lot of these folks don't have distributions themselves, right? Like that, like a lot of the at least in the professional space, even your great operators, your top operators, they haven't spent the time building up followings you know, on LinkedIn and Twitter. And a lot of times the people who have spent their career on that aren't necessarily the best people to represent your company. Um, Like the the two don't necessarily fit all the time. So I I don't know. Like I think there is a new playbook to be written here. Somebody's going to write it. Uh, I'll be intrigued to see what it is. But I guarantee you it is not the community-led growth like whole wave. That's just like a rebranding of a bunch of stuff. So...
1: I'm sure that when it comes about Reforge, I'll have a great uh, course on it. I'm curious if you could dig into this concept of distribution just a little bit, because on your side of the fence, you guys mention it all the time, but we rarely ever say the word uh, in our community as, as bootstrapped founders. What do you
0: mean by distribution? I mean, at the end of the day, I think it just simply comes down to having an audience that listens to you. And trusts you that you can sell things to, <laughs> like that's what dis- that's what distribution means, and that can come in a lot of different forms. That can come from having an amazing sales machine, right? Uh, yeah. That's Microsoft, right? That that's not a bootstrap. Com- well, uh, they were kind of bootstrap for a while in the very early days, right? But that can also come from an email list and those types of things. So I think that's element number one, and then the element number two around distribution is that you have a way, you, you have a mechanism where the more input you give it, that, that connects to giving you an output that leads to more input. Um, and that, that's kind of what we commonly refer to as like a loop or a growth loop. It's like a system um, and it works like compound interest. So yeah, to take an example, right, like you could take a content engine and let's say you did every single podcast, you got like 100 downloads. There's just like 100 downloads, 100 downloads like every single time. It's very different than you publish an episode and it goes from 100 to 120 to, uh, you know, and it's just growing like 20% episode after episode. Now, there is something that between step A, you publishing, and step B of you getting that 20% gain, there's things that are happening in between there and the whole part of distribution is basically figuring out what those things are, like wiring those up, pulling those mechanisms so that you basically get that like compounding, compounding growth over time. You're using your existing audience to parlay it into right. an incrementally bigger audience the next time you publish something or go out there with something.
1: So loops like the flywheel concept versus the funnel concept which I've always struggled with funnel concept, which is like, you're supposed to do this enormously expensive thing, waste a bunch of people's time, and then whittle it down to the, the people who matter at the end. I find it really like the funnel never really worked for me.
0: Well, part of the challenge with the funnel concept is that it kind of is, depending on your product, there is a, what I would call like a natural frequency of acquisition. People only consider adopting or, buying a new product every so often. And that time window is fundamentally different based on your product, right? So on one far end of the spectrum, let's consider something like, uh, let's consider a business considering to adopt a new payment processing system. That probably only happens like once every, man, five years or something. It's because it's just such a hard thing to rip out and replace. So your target market or even like the visitors to your website or whatever you want to consider like that top of your funnel let's say that's like 100,000 people and that's an there's a very small percentage that are actually within the buying window and if you only focus on the people that are within that that narrow buying window your growth really stall your your growth stalls out right and so you have to find a way to not only acquire but like engage those people who are not in that buying window. But what the funnel concept kind of really is like is like, oh, like the, those 99,999 people who aren't in the buying window, you just throw them away and you like, you ignore them. Right. And, yeah. and like that's, that, that's what that, that concept pushes to. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, you've got products like most consumer social products, which people will try out at any given moment, right? Uh, if like a friend tells them or something, right? Like, it's not like they look at those products and they're like, oh, I can only adopt one new social network, you know, every three years. Right. But this plays in the other direction. It might be easier to acquire and gain that attention. It's much harder to retain. Whereas on the other one, it's much harder to acquire, but much easier to retain because of those dynamics. And, and products live in this full spectrum. And so you have to understand not only who your target market is, but like, what are those buying moments and how often do those buying moments happen? And more importantly is, how do you make sure you're gaining the attention of people who are not in the buying moment so that when they are, they're coming to you first? That I think is part of separating linear from compounding type of growth.
1: I I really enjoy how you identify patterns like this. That's why I asked about distribution. And you have another concept, which is that... B2B B- B marketing tactics tend to lag pretty reliably behind consumer marketing tactics. And I'm wondering if I can just like toss a bunch of stuff at you at once. Like a lot of our listeners run SaaS or agencies, e-com brands that are kind of like mid-six, low-seven figures. And we really struggle to get to eight figures. Like that seems to be like the ultimate problem amongst TMBA listeners hmm. and are one of the major challenges. And I'm curious is like, how do you diagnose that problem? How much is it product market fit? How much, is, how much of it is uh, market choice? How much of it is founder ability? How much of it is scalability? You know, like, How do you start to break down that challenge?
0: I think we could probably generate a list of probably a dozen things that it could be. Let me start at the top.
1: Let me start at the top because you talked about time management when you jumped on the call. And part of the reason I wanted to talk to you is because I have been following Reforge way before I was ever introduced to you. And the first thought I had was, man, if Brian ran my business, it would be way bigger than it is now because he's really good at the stuff that we do. And so part of me is a strong believer in skill set and founder ability. And I'm just curious, to how do you manage your time? And do you believe that as well? Do you think the, the success of businesses are neatly correlated to the talent of the founder?
0: I, my guess is out of the whole list of things, this is probably one of the least common things maybe counterintuitively like I don't believe it's necessarily ability or time management I think it had most likely has to do with one of like the the 15 other factors with the dynamics of your business and your product and its natural limitations and we can dive into that managing my time I basically try to figure out what are the Problems in the business that only I like that will either be massively accelerated or only I can really solve. And I try to focus on those as best as I can. Now, the challenge is that oftentimes you, as the founder and CEO, can be a massive accelerator to almost any type of problem, but you've got to pair that with like elements of places where like you are a unique fit and if solved, it might have outsized leverage. So for me personally, my time is best spent on new zero to one initiatives. Those things in companies tend to be harder to hand off to others because of the amount of ambiguity and just like intuition and rapid iteration and all the things that probably got you to your mid to high six figures that you have to like repeat again on a new yeah. problem. It's really hard to hire that out and, and and hire those things out. Even at HubSpot, when we were at like 100 million in ARR and we were establishing new products, new zero to one initiatives, Halligan and Dharmesh, the two founders, like this was like out of all the initiatives was probably near the top of their list of the ones that they were paying attention to, spending time on blocking, like all, all of those types of things. So this, whether you're at six figures, hundreds of thousands or hundreds of millions, I think that element actually repeats.
1: That's really interesting. Could
0: you um, maybe use
1: artifacts as an example of that? There was a quote that I wrote down that it really stuck with me after you said it. You were referencing to the feeling of product market fit and... You quoted uh, Peter Reinhardt in part, but you said that the feeling of product market fit, which I think a lot of us haven't felt, is uh, the customers start pulling the product out of you. And you mentioned that that was how it felt when you launched Reforge, but there was a few projects that didn't go that way. And then artifacts felt similarly. I actually think, and to quote you, I actually think if you start building an organization who's never gone through the zero to one phase and who have never experienced it, that's when you can get into trouble where you can interpret nice-to-have qualitative feedback as having that product market fit pool. One of the hardest things for a growing organization is to edit and delete the nice-to-have ideas um, that haven't crossed the line into need-to-have. And at the end, you say, explaining why to the team is really hard. I'm wondering if you could Mm -hmm. break that down a little bit and where that came from.
0: Sure. So, okay. So a little history. Okay. So Reforge launched like seven years ago. The first course that Andrew Chen and I produced did, you know, we had thousands of apps on it. We did seven figures in revenue. It was highly profitable. Like this thing was bare bones, like embarrassing, and we still had good NPS on it. And the things that, and at the end of that, you know, we were hearing things from customers like, you know, I wish this was better. I wish this was better. I wish this was better. But can you do a course on X? Can you do it on Y? Can you do it on Z? Can you know, like, can you add this? And there is this energy from the customers that it's impossible to kind of see it in data. And sometimes actually data can mislead you away from that energy. Cause like our NPS on that first course, I, I think was like 12, 14. It was bad, right? But you looked at all of the other information and everything and you were like, oh, wait a second. There's... If we could do that with the amount of effort we put in, what happens if we actually put a little bit more effort into this thing? And so then we did that and then NPS like shot up to, you know, into the 70s and the 80s and we kept getting that vibe. Now, that got us to a number of year, you know, a certain way to, you know, 30-ish million in revenue. But then we started to see certain levers in our business start to essentially like stall out. And we knew that we needed something new to a new type of zero to one problem, particularly going back to our previous conversation, taking a course is a very episodic need. Most people are only in that market, maybe once every fewish years, right? There's a very small percentage of people out there that just like go through their career taking course after course. And so we knew to like unlock the next level of growth. Is that we needed a product that people would use on a higher frequency basis, you know, a week to week kind of month to month uh, type of thing. And we took a couple shots at goal, and it, you know, made a lot of mistakes essentially. Which was, I wasn't directly involved in the project, which slowed it down. We had because we had the resources, we put too many resources on it at the beginning, and that just led to more voices in the room, more coordination cost, more tax all that kind of stuff. We didn't silo it away from the rest of the company and so you had other people kind of peeking over the walls and being like, "But what about this? What about this? How does it affect my work and all that kind of stuff?" Also, you had a bunch of people who we had hired in a scale phase who were like looking at that project and and being like, "You know, they're obviously in the earliest phases. You have tons of unanswered questions." And they were like answering questions that were smart questions, asking questions that were smart questions, but they didn't matter for like two or three years. It didn't like there was a whole set of things that we had to go do (laughs) and spend our time on for them to matter. And so all these things. And so at some point I I had to step in and I basically hit the reset button. I like wiped the slate clean. I picked, handpicked a small team of a few folks. I directly got involved. We siloed them off from the rest of the company and we just totally reset things. And that led to our new product, Artifacts, which has kind of come racing out of the gate. And Artifacts is basically, I like to think about it as like a GitHub for everything that isn't code. Um, So rather than open source code, I can go in and I can see all sorts of people's real work, a product strategy doc, an experiment doc, a growth analysis, a marketing campaign, all that kind of stuff. And I can use that to like remix it into taking that specific thing and maybe adapting it and um, using it in my specific situation. And so to finally like get to your question around like the feeling of product market fit is similarly to what I described in the early days of Reforge with artifacts, we had, you know, with this bare bones thing, we started to get like emotional feedback, which wasn't like, Oh, this is cool. Like I like this. It was like, Whoa, I can't believe I have access to this stuff. I used this thing three times, you know, this week, and it helped me convince my VP of something. Like it was like, it was that type of feedback. And then, of course, what follows that emotion is then, well, like, could you give me this? Could you give me that? I'm gonna go start to work on this and so on and so forth, right? And it it starts to lead to once again, like the customer's kind of pulling these things out of you. And so now the hard part about that is like, if you ask your customers for ideas, they're going to give you ideas, but you've got to separate whether they feel really passionately about those ideas because they like really love it, or you're really tapping into an incredibly painful problem for them. Or are they just giving you ideas because it's like, kind of like, there's no cost to them to give you some ideas and it's like, well, cool. Yeah. If you go build this, like I might go try it, but that doesn't necessarily mean much. And that's probably the hardest part about like the strategic choices about separating those two things. And I think that's why you need a founder involved or somebody who's been through this zero to one phase or somebody who has just like sifted through Hundreds to thousands of points of feedback because they're going to have the intuitive sense. They're going to have enough reps at this to understand, like, ooh, this thing, this comment feels very different than the average. And so, anyways, like, I think that's kind of what Peter Reinhardt from segment is partially describing when he, when he uses that quote. And so that is, I think, the probably the difference maker on that stuff.
1: You you did your first course with Andrew and you guys had a, a wonderful first result. I'm curious, when you get to one, why was it, it you know, the way you tell that story is like, oh, you just scaled it up to multiple eight figures. I'm curious. <laughs> no, <as> there's
0: <laughs> a lot of steps. There's a lot of steps in between there, yeah.
1: A lot of businesses that I see, they have a great start and then they sort of peter out. And you mentioned there's like natural dynamics in, in every marketplace and every product and stuff. And I'm curious as to what potential did you see in that product that it could scale into that next phase from zero to one to multiple eight figures?
0: It wasn't obvious, uh, for sure. And I actually have the original... I have what is called a business hypothesis canvas. Essentially, it's like a very summarized version of here are my key hypotheses for this business idea. I have the original one that I wrote in early 2016... Up on artifacts on Reforge. You can you can go to it and read it. And I have a bunch of commentary showing like what I got right and what I got wrong. And so you can kind of rewind in history and see that. And so, okay, so we bootstrapped into about 10 million in revenue. That first one, we looked at it and you know, we we had those results, but we had a really low NPS. And so we had questions. We were like, well, like can we get the NPS much higher with a few small changes? is this a one-time fluke? Did we just like tap into the few hundred early adopter folks interested in this topic or are there more? Like those were some of the questions we had. So we took those and we were like, all right. Um, and six months, nine months later, I can't remember how long, we basically ran a second one that targeted those questions. And and it answered this question. We got the NPS to 70. That one did just as well as the first one. And so we were like, okay, like this thing isn't a fluke and we we can get this thing to 70. And then our next set of questions were like, oh, well, is have we just tapped into a really unique... Is the fluke around the topic or there is there demand yeah, for, for the other teacher. topics or the teacher? And yeah, that was the second question. And like, do we have to be the ones that create them or can we go out and get and work with others to create them as well? So that was our next set. And so then we went and developed the retention and engagement program, uh, which was an adjacent topic to our first one, which was a general growth program. So it wasn't like going from growth to something crazy like cooking or, you yeah. know, <laughs> like just so far away. <laughs> and then we did that. We did that one with Sean Claus, who at the time was coming off as head of growth of Atlassian and Casey Winters, uh, who was at Pinterest. And then that one did just as well. And even in its first one, better than our first course, um, the growth series. But I think at that time, we still thought it might be a fluke. So then we did, we did a third one, which was our uh, growth strategy program, which we repeated with Casey and a guy named um, Kevin Kwok. And so then by that point, we were like, okay, this isn't a fluke. Uh, we just have to see where, where the walls are, where the limitations are. And so we started to produce other programs as best as we could, as fast as we could to see like, where those natural limitations are. And certainly, we hit those natural limitations. You know, Our experimentation and monetization programs did well, but not as well as the first few. And we had some learnings from that um, around that and then some other pieces. So you went off to... You, you built a team and you guys did a couple other things. Now Artifacts why
1: didn't you keep your nose to the grindstone and keep with that versus diversifying? Like, how did you realize you reached some sort of limit versus, you know, the meme of the coal miner right by the edge of the opportunity or he gives up or he goes through? Like, how do you know you're at a limitation versus it's time to develop a new product?
0: I do think that anticipating these limitations is the difference between like... A, smooth growth curve and a freaking roller coaster <laughs> and i think that we've anticipated some but not all of them so we're kind of like somewhere in the middle and there's different types of constraints and different types of limitations some of the ones we ran into was first we ran into a creation multiple creation constraints so i created the first few programs myself i also taught all the first few programs myself at some point that obviously doesn't scale. Now we could have made the choice at that point to say, you know what? We're kind of happy with the business we've got. And uh this is our limitation. And we're just gonna like work within that constraint. It would have been a profitable business. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Why weren't you happy with it? Because I'm impatient and I like <laughs> there's something annoying about myself, like in me that I, like wasn't satisfied. Uh and so there's a big part of me that wishes i would have been content with that because i think parts of my life would be a lot easier frankly and if what do you mean it, by that do you mean the
1: the stress of running a larger organization
0: oh 100% stress of running a larger organization constantly taking on newer bigger more ambiguous problems the stresses you have from more when when you deal with get more and more people involved you know through the course of reforge we, my wife and I, have had three kids, including uh, one child that we lost at birth. Uh, like all those things, right? Like life gets yeah. more complicated, not less complicated. And you can either add more complication into that life, which I certainly have, right? Or you, you know, and make those strategic choices, or or you could you you can choose not to. And I think both are totally reasonable decisions. So
1: one of the concerns with having a tidy Profitable business is that if you're not growing it, it can tend to be vulnerable or decay. Have you seen businesses out there that you really admire that have actually done that successfully that have sort of engineered a cash flow engine that's durable and low stress and has a flywheel effect?
0: Yeah. It might be easier for me to answer this if like, had I stayed in that mode, how would I have kept Reforge durable? There you go. Right. And Uh, The way I would have kept Reforge durable at that point is to just continue to increase our exclusivity bar that we had early on in the company. So basically, accept less and less people and parlay that into increasing the premiumness of the brand, right? So that it didn't matter if people copied the content of the course, which we've had a bunch of assholes do. Sorry, but... Every founder can like, relate to that. F- those guys. God, man. And, oh, God. I could go on a whole <laughs> rant on that front. So you basically turn it into something that is incredibly hard for others to copy, right? And in that mode, it would have been really hard to copy our... Like that brand that somebody could get from coming like to... Like a university degree, Yeah, it would have been like running Harvard, that... YC. It, it would have been running that playbook. It would have been running that playbook for sure. And I wouldn't have had to grow the number... Of courses, I wouldn't have even had to grow enrollees, right? I would just have to kind of maintain that bar and play that game. I think in more of a SaaS product, I think the question would that I would ask myself is like, is there a particular segment of customer that I can just go keep going deeper and deeper and deeper on, so that It's this thing is so well built for this specific customer. It just doesn't make sense for others to go after it because the pressure in the SaaS company most of the time is to add more and more features to appeal to a wider and wider audience, right? And so if you're trying to build like really big depth and durability in a SaaS small bootstrap company, that's probably the way that I would do it.
1: When you extended yourself to scale, what did that extension look like? You talk about it's kind of opening up, getting more gasoline in the system. Was it capital? Was it partners?
0: Like what was it risk? Yeah, I think, I mean, part of it was certainly capital. So about four years into the business, we flipped the switch to the venture side and we we raised a $20 million um, dollar Series A. We changed dynamics of the business to achieve that scale. Uh, so we originally charged thirty five hundred dollars per individual course. We were very premium priced um, up front. Yeah. We changed that to a two thousand per year all you could eat membership model, and started to slowly accept more and more people in. The more content we added, you know, to make it more relevant for a larger group of people, and so that unleashed a whole new set of growth. Like we went from zero to. 20 million in ARR on that membership product in the first year. And then of course, a big part of it was team. And so, you know, we had to start to, I had to stop creating programs. So we had to hire a few folks, figure out a whole new system of how we could train those folks and create those programs. And then those people had to go and figure out, okay, I've learned this now. How do I create a repeatable system of hiring more folks and training let them? Me, let me interrupt because because. Yeah. You took on this money now it's like
1: it seems like you guys knew in advance this was the right move, like the right tooling, but for me, you say thirty five hundred placing plus a compared with the two thousand dollar subscription, they feel like the same price range to me. well they uh, we the did screen.
0: not know right like I would say like if back at that time I, like I, I have some notes on it, which was I think at that time it was one of those things where everything we kept doing kept working, and we were still getting that product market fit pulling out of us. And we were at like the $10 million scale. And so I think we sat there and thought it was like, okay, like there's some signals here that there's clearly something potentially bigger and like venture backable. But you never know the true answer to those questions. Like it's just impossible, right? And so it was a bet. It was like a calculated bet. And and part of that calculated bet was a personal decision, right? Which was like, like, do I want to pursue this path or not? Because this path comes with a lot of cons to it. You know, you close a lot of exit doors for you personally as a founder. You're signing yourself up for a whole lot of people problems. You know, the bigger the team yeah. you get, right? Like, like all of these sets of things. And so I don't think you actually know it. You got to view it as a bet and you got to decide how much of that risk you, you know, you wanna wanna take on and how much potential return there is to that equation. So I think that's how we thought about it at the time.
1: Do you still reserve your mornings for creative builder time?
0: I try my best. So the way that I think about it is I reserve my morning time for my most energy consuming things, which is typically writing generation mode. Can you give us some
1: examples of an actual thing you do? Because I think a lot Uh, of people in our audience think like I might pull out the novel out of the top drawer and try to get started on the something creative. But I'm curious as relative to your business, what do those tasks look like?
0: Yeah, so like right now, we're starting to think about like, what are our big bets for 2024, right? So I have like a whole notion file called 2024 bets. And right now I'm just in mode where I just, every morning I try to brain dump any new thoughts and new riffs, no matter how bad it is. At some point, I will move into synthesis mode, and I will like take all those notes and take all of those thoughts and start to synthesize it into some something coherent and start to talk about it with our c o o so like that's one example um another example would be we do these things called hbos they it stands for hypothesis beta outcomes. It's kind of like a product review process, but it's extended to the entire company, and those are those are opportunities for teams to come get feedback on critical decisions that they need to make. And those typically require quite a bit of energy to review, create two to three, like really targeted questions and like some thoughts. And so I'll spend some morning, like this morning, I spent a couple hours reviewing those for today. Or like tomorrow, I've got to, <laughs> I've got to write board notes. That's very much a like creative synthesis process. Uh, And so I'll probably spend like three hours tomorrow morning writing those until I'm like completely tapped out. So those are three examples just from this week.
1: You have an education company. And one of the things that I think is compelling about you is you have a mix of academic and practical knowledge that's really compelling. And I think they feed off each other. And you have a really impressive track record of the sorts of companies that you worked at, like Zoom Info and HubSpot. Is it possible to recreate the knowledge that you've gained at a company like HubSpot without going to work for a big company like that? A lot of the folks listening to this show, they don't come from a big tech pedigree. We basically Mm -hmm. learned a lot of our stuff by building sites and stuff on the web. I'm curious as to, would you advocate that we do our learning online or that we should go join a company like this and get mentorship by folks who've been in more established tech companies?
0: It's a good question. I would say, I think like two very high level thoughts and then we can go deeper, which is, one is you will never gain all of the same knowledge you would from like going into the experience, but that might be okay. Which, uh, you know, there's the pieces you need or the pieces you want, you might be able to get without, you know, going into that process, right? And then even if you do join that company, you know, I, th- I see a lot of people do that and they're like, oh, I just want to get, you know, a few years of experience of joining XYZ and 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 learn. And and they take this like passive approach. They're just going to, like the learnings are just going to be dumped on them. No, you got to go f- <laughs> seek it out. Drink like, from the HubSpot chalice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you got, like it's, you might get into that role, you might get into that position, but you you have to seek those things out. And that's actually even more important the more junior the role is. Because the more junior the role is, the more you've got to fight your way into conversations and things that give you like the at least the learnings that I found most valuable at HubSpot, which were seeing how other just like incredible talent thought about really hard, ambiguous strategic questions, right? And just like seeing reps at that. It's about the question is is like, what could you get reps at? A lot more reps at in that environment that would be very hard to get reps at outside of that envir- environment. And in there's a set of things that fill that bucket and in, in answer that question. And for me, it was just seeing people debate and think about those style of questions at a whole new level than I had ever seen before, and would have been incredibly hard to get outside of it because you know, you can engage with a mentor. I could have, I don't know, uh, like gotten the CEO or one of the executives maybe to be my mentor, right? And what they're going to tell me is kind of the output of all of those reps. But that is very different than seeing everything go through the meat grinder, right? Um, Totally. It's the same as like the zero to one process, right? Like when you go through the meat grinder of the zero to one process, you understand like where you start and all of the challenges you work through to get to the output. And that's very different than just looking and analyzing what the output is. And because otherwise, when you start on a new zero-to-one project, you're like, well, why doesn't it feel or look like this thing that has already gone through the meat grinder, right? And, um, it's like, no, you had to turn the crank, man.
1: Yeah, totally. That's fascinating. So a lot of us kind of playing on repeat a lot of the experiences we had in our last job but just now we own it you know just running this playbook that we learned somewhere else this for that and it can it can be done in a career perspective as well
0: i think it's always good to leverage those experiences i think for me like to start reforge i had leveraged ingredients i had picked up along the entire way right so uh in my right. first company was the company that i originally started as a PM at a company, but in my first company I started, I was like forced into learning this growth thing during the whole social gaming boom. And that's how I learned user acquisition and product-led growth and viral loops and all of that kind of stuff. And then in my second company was an education company. And um, I won't go deep into it, but it's where I picked up a lot of my content creation skills um, as part of it. And then HubSpot gave me not only the brand cred that really helped get Reforge, off the ground but it also gave me just like another layer of how to take a bunch of thoughts and deliver them in a synthesized frameworky strategic thinking type of way that could make sense to a bunch of others all of those things came together to start reforge right but there was also a bunch of stuff that i learned in those gigs that i tossed out the window <laughs> right that it's not it's totally. not like i used them all and so i i think that it's about mixing and matching those things. A
1: couple of final questions. I'm going to have the hodge of all your podcasts appearing, some of the best stuff you put out on the web linked to on this show. So oh, cool. So people can follow up. But I'm curious if it's not something that, that you've done, something that content that you interact with or a book or a podcast that's really inspired you, say, in the past two to four years that could, I don't know, represents your, your philosophy or, or your uh, operating system, the way you think about business that people could experience for themselves?
0: I think the things that I look for are, one is it's counterintuitive on the surface. Two, it's like well synthesized. And three, it's uh, what I would refer to as high calorie density. It doesn't feel like empty calories. It feels like every bite I'm taking is something that i could get to chew on for a while. I think examples of that would be certainly Ray Dalio, the past five years, has been on a freaking tear on this front. Um, yeah. With all of his book and his writing about macroeconomics, it's like every chapter of that thing, I feel like I'm learning a decade of research, essentially, which, which it kind of is. It's his life work, right? Yeah. Another interesting, like smaller, shorter form example is there's a uh, entrepreneur Parker Conrad who's the founder CEO of Rippling, and he has this whole new business thesis around what he calls the compound startup. This is a it's about a couple years old now, huh. but it's another one where you can tell like it's kind of a synthesis of ten years of thoughts that have been building for him, and it's very counterintuitive thought to the whole ecosystem and then maybe i would say more in the entertainment realm of things but still feels like high density is that i really respect what the acquired guys have done um with that podcast and yeah the thing i appreciate there is they've done a very counter they did a very counterintuitive set of things they did long form not short form they didn't do interview style they did Storytelling side. They paired the storytelling uh, with an analysis. Like they did a bunch of counterintuitive things along the way. And it feels like high calorie entertainment, uh, professional entertainment for me. I don't think I'm like learning something in the same way I'm learning something if I'm taking like a really high density course, but uh, just really appreciate what those guys have done.
1: Very cool. Brian, I'm glad I asked. I think your content shares the same attributes. So thanks for sharing with us today. And thanks for coming on the
0: TNBA podcast. Thanks for having me.
1: Big shout out to Brian Balfour, the founder and CEO of Reforge. We appreciate you coming by the show, Brian. Just, I, not only talking to Brian, but click through on the show notes and check out, first off, Brian's new podcast called Unsolicited Feedback, but also... If you have the opportunity or an afternoon or a weekend day, do a little Brian Belford deep dive on the internet. There's also another founder that he brought up in the conversation named Parker Conrad. Two startup founders with really interesting ideas. So I hope you guys found it inspiring and interesting. And if you didn't, we'll be back next Thursday morning with another episode. Thanks for listening. That's it. <laughs> Hey, so you like the show, just want to remind you, we have a website, tropicalmba.com. You can click through on your phone, check us out on the web, hit that subscribe button. I write the newsletter every week. There's a lot going on behind the seats of the pod. That's the best way to find out about upcoming events, both virtual, in-person, and much more. Check us out at tropicalmba.com and give us some feedback on this brand spanking new website.
0: Because it's time for us spanking. spanking, spanking.